Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am. I, we're here. I said we might not make it this week. We are here. I am rushed. I am slammed for time. I might speak very fast, but but we're here. I'm, I'm here. The, you speak faster than normal to get this over and done with as quickly as possible. Huh? <laughs> so uh, we will definitely not record next week. I will be on vacation, but we are here this week, uh, and uh, I am I'm happy to be here with you, James. You get a week off. What what madness is this, Ben? Oh, it, it, I'm already <laughs> thinking about. All this stuff that I unfortunately will have to do on vacation. It's oh no! Yeah, it's bad when it follows you like that. Uh, uh, such yep. is life. Yeah, such is life. We're sponsored this week by Mailchimp. Mailchimp has forever free pricing. You can send twelve thousand emails a month to a list of up to two thousand subscribers with Mailchimp's forever free plan, and you don't even need a credit card. If you ever do want to send more subscribers or send more emails or get take advantage of all of MailChimp's, uh, the full slate of features, you can pay whenever you're ready. But up until then, you can use the plan for as long as you like. So our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this week's episode of Exponent. Very good. So this week uh, is <laughs> it was about politics, which is a little fraught given the uh, – the the what's what's going on right now but what, what's uh, going on right now <laughs> well i it, hopefully it wasn't political and that that was on purpose because i i think there's not that i don't we don't have political views we've certainly articulated them plenty on on this podcast i but rather i think there there are some really fundamental shifts happening uh at many of which you know unsurprisingly line up with stuff that we've talked about in the past mm. and you know the th- it's important to understand them, not just from a sort of you know cold-hearted analytical standpoint, but thinking about going forward. Like if you if you think about whether whatever side of the political aisle you're on, or the multi-dimensional aisle, or whatever it may be, if you want to think about how to succeed going forward, it's critical to understand how the world has changed. And so when I write about politics as I did here, as I have in the past, and it's with a sort of apolitical bent, it's it's for that reason because it's very easy to get I don't want to say mired cuz it's not that that insinuates it's not valuable. It's e- easy to get stuck in what's going on right now, but without sort of backing up and looking, you know, getting the sort of big picture of the world and how it, I believe it has shifted it's impossible to sort of chart a path going forward. So that that's kind of my broader goal. And the reason why I'm not getting into, part, you know, passing judgment on the on the sort of day-to-day going on, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. I mean, I find this topic fascinating. Um, obviously, the internet has had a massive ch- impact on lots of different things. Um, and it's kept us busy for, what, 102 episodes, 103 episodes now. But uh, the... Business versus political side is always fascinating to me because there are a lot of similarities and there are a lot of things that work exactly the same way. But there are certain things that are unique to politics that don't happen in the business world, where the the fundamentals, the the tensions, and the way in, the mechanics of which things play out are very different. And such, I always find it interesting when you, we kind of pick up this business lens. Uh, this analyst lens that we often use looking at internet, the impact of the internet in business, but apply it to the political landscape because there are things about it that make it different. And that makes it, it makes it really interesting to dive into because those, those differences, those nuances are so interesting to me. 
Well, they're, they're different and nuanced in the context of politics itself. But I think it's also interesting to look at politics with a goal of looking back at business as well. And the mm. reason is what's so interesting about politics is the sort of there's still a profit motive, but that profit motive is not monetary, right? Any money that is that is involved is a means towards an end, which is winning elections, getting your – you know getting your issues adopted or stopped or whatever it may be. And what makes that really interesting, particularly in the context of the internet is, you know, one of the great challenges of the internet is it's, you know, it's still, it's hard to make money and it's hard to make money because of the things we talked about, about distribution being free, about software being infinitely replicable, all those sorts of things that let, you know, things on the internet scale also make it really, really hard to build moats, make it really, really hard to, you know, and so usually when we measure strategies and measure impact, we do that by by what's the scorecard? We talked about you start talking about last week, right? The scorecard is 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 how much the money dollars. you made. Yeah, right. It, exactly. But it that's hard. It, I'm and not saying that shouldn't be the scorecard for business. Obviously it should. But the internet is so is so radically different in so many ways that I think there are lots of things and changes happening that in the long run will show up on that scoreboard, but in the short term are actually showing up much more powerfully in politics because you can see you can measure it better because your measurement basis is not is not monetary. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into it. So <laughs> Last so the the I, I wrote last spring uh, the voters decide, which you know in my very biased opinion it was one of a, I think a very explanatory piece for the recent election cycle and basically uh, my starting point was the there's a famous book called uh, the party decides which basically posits that even though in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the U.S. political party shifted to a democratic process for nominating the presidential candidates. You know, it used to be the, you know, the proverbial smoke-filled room that actually the party still controlled who the candidate would be. Maybe less where they got together and picked someone, but more that various groups exercised veto power. And the critical thing to understand is that the political parties is a collection of interests who have specific goals, specific policy goals. It's not necessarily the politicians. The politicians are the representatives, the people put forward by all the various interests in the party. And those interests in the party exercise power through things like money or things through like exposure or things through through get out the vote or their you know their various ways to aggregate and and control sort of their constituents and and th- th- this was true and that and that's why the parties largely still had a handle on the nomination process all the way up through and this was the core sort of theor or you know theoretical explanation for why it would Donald Trump would obviously lose because the party would veto him and even and he would not not succeed. Obviously that didn't happen and what the voters decide piece set, noted is that all the political parties were were inextricably sort of intertwined with the media because what are you know what are the two ways to sort of get exposure there's paid media which is advertisements, which you need a lot of money and you need a whole apparatus to, to get that and, and to do it. And there's earned media, which is you have to actually be in the news, right? They have to be in the news has to be writing about you. And the political parties, again, not, not the, not, not the nominal like structure, like the people, like the DNC or the RNC, but like the parties as a collective whole, as an entity 
held the keys to all of that. And if you wanted to make a national run for for the presidency, you needed a way to be able to get a certain level of exposure across 50 states, and that just wasn't viable without the help of the party institution. It maps this, – this is definitely one area where it maps so neatly to business and this notion of distribution that that it used to be – one of the biggest challenges that companies used to face was being able to get their products in front of people. And it was difficult. Like you want to you build something and then get it out – uh, get it out to hundreds of millions of people across the country. It wasn't just, I mean, I love this, uh, this analogy of air wars and ground wars and th- that kind of the, the process of rolling something out like that is so much a ground war where you are slogging it out trench by trench. You want to get to a hundred million people. You need to think about all the geographies and all the locales, which means you need to get distribution de- like wholesalers. And then you need to get it into, sh- into stores and like, where is it going to sit on the shelf? Like that distribution challenge was such a big issue. And it's, it's, it maps perfectly to what you're just describing in terms of media and the political process. Like that was such a big challenge and it was all that power was centralized in the political parties. Right. It, 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 but th- that, that centralizing of power was tied to the fact that the way to get to customers slash voters was via these geographically constrained but Mm -hmm. dominant media entities, whether they be television broadcasters, whether they be newspapers, et cetera. Like those were the only way to reach customers. And again, that's why they were so profitable because for advertisers, that was also the way to reach customers, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they could have their, their split between, you know, editorial and advertising and and feel very self-righteous about themselves because they, the money just rolled in without them really doing anything because they were the only channel to customers, right? So, I mean, I think the story, where the story goes is pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Once that fell apart, once that the geographic restrictions went away, once newspapers were not the only way to reach customers, in fact, they were one of effectively an infinite number of ways to reach customers, same thing with video, same thing with TV, the, the, their power, that, that, that bottleneck was gone. And by extension, everything that gave the parties their power, particularly in the presidential nomination process – was also necessarily gone. Right. And in the same way that you you now see, uh, uh, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of different varieties over the last few episodes, but you think about the difference between someone who is making software 10, 15, 20 years ago and how they had to get that software out on the shelves and you'd have to have distribution agreements. And now you just, you, you work with Apple and you flick the switch and or, or Google with the Play Store and your software is rolled out uh, to, to people in geographies all around the world. And it is exactly the same now with getting messages out to, to voters. It's, it's a case of you do not need like the monopoly that those media institutions had on people's attention is gone and they've been replaced. It's gone from the ground war to the air war where you're playing it. Uh, you, you, you're fighting on Facebook. You're fighting on Twitter. You have these. Uh, filter bubbles forming where people are inside their own little arena reading the news that they want to read. It's like a completely different environment. Right. So, well, there's, there's, there's a few things going on here. So the point here is that 
the media was removed as the bottleneck, right? Now that doesn't necessarily it, this have this this had two two shifts. So one, the media wasn't the bottleneck, but two, it shifted sort of the posture of the media about this stuff. It used to be I kind of just you know mocked that oh we have the separation between editorial and advertising and stuff like that. The benefit of that is that the editorial could have a certain sort of prerogative on what they covered or whatever. Like you're. You know, the newspapers of the 70s would have decided that someone Donald Trump was unacceptable and just wouldn't have covered him, right? But in the implication of this new world, of this being this world of abundance, and that the entities that gain power are the ones that aggregate users by controlling discovery, first Google and then Facebook, which again, we've we've talked about, you know, on multiple occasions, mm. the implication of that is that the media organizations themselves became commoditized. They became just more content fillers on the same status level as your aunt posting updates or your sister's baby or your brother's dog or whatever whatever it might be, and and so that shifted there, and so and so th- th- so that was kind of per- for part one is that the, that was the voters decided that the media was devalued in power, which meant by extension the the polit- the political parties are devalued in power. Part two, though, is what happens after that. And, and what happens after that is this is kind of getting to the first one, is the media shifts where they they give the people what they want because that's what's rewarded by the 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 services and platforms that control that bottleneck, right? Facebook wants to give people stuff they engage with. So what is a media organization motivated to do? They're motivated to produce content and articles that the people will engage with, right? And so it's not like the, I mean it's not like the media disappeared off the face of the earth and all that was left were like Facebook status messages, right? But the the media today is is just fundamentally different than the media before because now it is it, it is a commodity. It, 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 it you know Facebook says jump, they have to say how high, whereas it used to be they were the ones telling people to jump or not. Yeah. The gatekeeper role has shifted. So, I mean, they're still responsible for producing a lot of the news articles. It's just that the it's almost like the editorial role that used to live within the media organizations, that decision around what to put in front of people has been taken away from media organizations and shifted towards these platforms. And inside of the platforms, it's not a group of people sitting around making decisions based on editorial judgment. It's an algorithm. And the algorithm is being fueled by, uh, okay, what's going to cause people to engage the most? And that is resulting in a completely different set of things being put in front of people than what would have previously been the case when it was a group of, I mean, again, we... There are, there are things to miss about it, but and we can reminisce, but it was typically white old guys making decisions around, okay, is this the news that's fit to go out to people? And that, that comes with pros and cons, as we've discussed around lots of things uh, around the internet. Like, you're unleashing... You're, you're unleashing all this possibility both on the upside and on the downside. When it comes to news, given that the focus or, or what determines what's going in front of you is engagement, I would probably say it's probably more erring on the downside. Well, in, if unless you're a a segment or a population that wasn't covered previously, right? That, absolutely. I mean, we talked about this. We talked about this last summer in the context of you know, sort of, uh, you know violence against particularly minorities in, in the United States, there's lots of stuff that, you know, 
people are like, wow, I had no idea this was happening. Why did they yeah. have no idea it was happening? Because the people who in charge of the news had no idea it was happening because they weren't in that world. They don't live in that world. But now you have something like Facebook that elevates that stuff to the national national consciousness. You know, it, it's – I would just stick with it's different. Like you're, you're, there are pros and there are cons. And I think it to, to yeah. focus on either is to be wrong, to say it's all bad is to be wrong and it's to be – you're probably privileged to say it's all good is to be sort of a naive optimist. And the reality is it's a change. It is neither good nor bad. The good or bad that results will is up to us. It's, it's up to us as a collective to figure out how this is going to go. And, and just to go back to my original point, that's why it's critical to understand what's happening, right? So many people are kind of running around with their heads cut off without sort of backing up and, and, realizing the shifts that are happening and those shifts again i wrote this way back when in friction right the internet is is re, is eliminating friction it is fundamentally changing the way things work and it is an amoral shift it is not intrinsically good it is not intrinsically bad it is it is a shift and it is whether it will be good or bad is in the balance and it's and that's why it's important to appreciate that it's happening so you can you know, sort of take take the initiative to make sure it, it it ends up being good. Yeah, I mean, and your point is definitely well made. It's it, the the fact that there are things being highlighted that wouldn't have been highlighted before. I think is um, I think is a fantastic thing, and it's it's a great thing for society. I guess my concern is. Um, my concern and why I, I, I feel like because what you just said, I agree with. And I, I feel like I need to give a little bit of explanation as to why I would say on balance, I'm worried about this, because what uh, what a lot of these algorithms are doing, are they are focusing on what drives the most engagement and it, it pushes people it, it does two things it pushes people out to the extremes but it also causes people to cluster around those extremes and I think both of those two effects are not necessarily uh, are not necessarily good ingredients for a healthy functioning civil society and in the context of the political debate that's why I'm a little bit that's probably why I'm a little bit bearish. But your point around there are positive impacts to it as well. Of course, it would be it would be uh, it would be completely unfair and uh, to to argue that there haven't been lots of positive impacts to it as well. And and your your position is 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 fine. It's perfectly fine to say that you know that has worrisome effects for civil society, which I completely agree. I, I think, you know, I, at the end of our, our sort of anniversary episode a few weeks ago, you know, I, I articulated this idea of, you know, society being like a, a centrifuge. And and if the gra- if the sort of center, you know, if the gravity mm. decreases, the centrifugal forces will pull the whole thing apart. And I remain very concerned about that. However, it's one thing to despair over this happening, but the genie's out of the bottle, right? Yeah. Like, and and I guess this is a frustration I have with with a lot of this discussion. Is it's fine to sit here and think about oh what went wrong, but you know it's funny like all sides of the political equation all sort of have this longing for the past, right? Mm. And the past that they envision is very different. But the reality is the only way 
the only place we can move is forward. And and so that starts with, yes, understanding the way things were before. Mm-hmm. And let's take a moment to grieve that it's no longer that way and also celebrate mm-hmm. the, the good things that have happened. Yeah. But then we it's time to move on to, okay, so what exactly is what, what is reality today? And given that, how do you move forward? And I think this is what I um, really appreciated about your article this week. Um, I had, I think the, the first part, um, I think lots of folks have intuitively come to this conclusion. Maybe not lots of folks. Some folks have intuitively come to this conclusion that what drives passion what uh, what drives engagement and therefore what drives passion uh, or f- figuring out, I mean, the cynical way of putting it would be figuring out how to exploit people's confirmation biases, like playing to people's prejudices. Uh, that's the cynical way of putting it, is definitely a thing in the era of algorithms where engagement uh, uh, is is king. And I've experienced it myself. I wrote something last year on uh, what was happening with San Bernardino and uh, how the U.S. government was going after iPhones. And I provocatively entitled it, The U.S. Has Gone Fucking Mad. And I opened it with a picture comparing uh, an AR-15 with the five multicolored iPhone 5Cs and said, you know, which of these killed these people now? Which is the U.S. government going after? And it it... It drove so much passion on both sides. It wasn't that everyone agreed with it or uh, – I mean, every, it's not that everyone agreed with it, but everyone had a strong opinion about it and that drove lots of sharing and it was far and away the most red thing that I wrote last year. And so intuitively, I think lots – and with everything that's happening with the fake news where you play to people's biases, like that's – I think people intuitively – get the first step that you took with the article. What I thought was so cool about it, though, was taking the 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 next leap, which is like, okay, if this is the case, if this is, if engagement is now one of the principal factors around uh, what wins, what breaks through, what works in the social era, then now what do we have to do differently? What does a political candidate have to do differently in order to break through and that's what i thought you did a really good job of with this week well thank you so the thing i want to do though is is kind of back out in in, like i this was framed around politics because i think you know obviously there's politics on the top of people's minds these days and also for the point i made before that you can almost see these effects much more powerfully in politics in part because there's the business models different if that makes Mm, sense yeah but but again i think this applies not just to politics but to business to products to all those sorts of things and and i wanted to get into really thinking from a systematic perspective why is this the case because it's not like new to think that people can get inflamed about their passions right i mean you could go back to you know the ancient myths and they're about people being inflamed with their passions this isn't exactly a new phenomena about being human right so so the question is why does that matter more today in a way that it didn't previously if that makes sense totally so, so the, the, the key thing, we've kind of touched on this from different angles, but in the sort of, particularly in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, post-World War II, where you had the, the rise of big corporations and, you know, 
big TV station, big you know networks, and all those sorts of things. And I, I've talked about how all that stuff was was intertwined, and that was kind of the, the state of the world from you know 1945 to you know so sometime around now has been these sort of large mass market entities, right? It's called mass media or mass market products, or you know CPG. We've talked about the context of CPG mm. goods for sure, and. We've talked in the past how all those are intertwined, but the reason they're intertwined goes into this this distribution question, right? So you got tremendous efficiencies from being large, not just from the traditional sort of economies of scale sort of thing, where you know if you make a lot of something, you can you know can bring down the cost curve. Where the efficiencies really came in is in maximizing throughput. In the bottleneck, right? The, the the again, what was the bottleneck? You just went on a nice little rant about getting your stuff into stores and the ground right. war and all that sort of stuff, right? So you take something like CPG goods, the bottleneck was actually getting your stuff, your stuff stocked. And so to be large gave you leverage, right? Give you leverage over wholesalers, give you leverage over retailers. So you could leverage your Taiwan detergent to get your brand extension on the shelf next to it or whatever, whatever it might be. And and so by there was lots of knock-on effects on this though because that was the constraining factor that was the number one thing that mattered from a strategic perspective that influences every single part of the product and so from a product perspective what the products that worked in this sort of mass market era were relatively bland broadly acceptable products right you you, you you didn't want to piss off too many people. You wanted to be good enough and broadly acceptable because you there's limited opportunities to get through that bottleneck. So whatever products you got through that bottleneck, you wanted them to be reach the maximum number of people. Makes total sense. The bias, the bias again was towards bland. Same in newspapers did the same thing, right? They 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 that's why you is you you got the sort of newspapers that had these standards and were even handed and all this sort of stuff because you didn't want to piss off too many people. Because the, the, so the goal was to not make people mad, as opposed to get people. The, 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 this I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but this hit home for me when got making the switch from FM radio in my car to listening to podcasts. Like in the old world, there was this geographic constraint; there were only a certain number of channels you could have, and so someone landed on your channel. You wanted to be a little bit different from the other channels, but not so different that you drive away lots of people because you were trying to get as many people in the geography as possible. But you switch to a world of podcasts where it's infinitely addressable market. You you want to go to the other end of the spectrum where it's like you you want to have some carved out little niche where you have a group of people that are absolutely fanatical and being average and in the middle is no good to anybody because someone's going to go out and find exactly what they love because there's so much choice out there now. Right, exactly. Because before, originally in the old world, you're, the customers were all captive. They mm -hmm. had limited choice. Right, and so right. you want to appeal to, to to the broadest number. The difference is, so you think think about just just kind of envision this this old world being this sort of funnel going to a bottleneck, and there was the, only a certain number of products could get through, only a certain number of politicians could get through, whatever it might be. And so the ones that got through, once they got through that bottleneck, needed to appeal to the largest number of folks on the other side, and those folks would only have a a few limited choices, right? Because not that many. Products could make it through the bottleneck, right? The internet 
t- blows up that bottleneck. It, it makes it effectively infinite. And so mm. now you have all those those customers inundated with products, inundated with politicians, inundated with all sorts of things that, that they can barely start to sort through it, right? And so the first really sort of key player that came along was Google. And, and, and so people could go to Google and they could pick out from that horde the specific thing that they wanted and the specific you know, politician that they wanted or the specific product that they wanted. And that fundamentally changed the sort of product or politician or whatever it might be that was successful because now it wasn't captive customers choosing from a limited number of options. It was customers needing to want something, not just have something handed to them. They had to actually, they had to actually go out and they had to type something in that search browser. So in the case of politics, you know, Obama was a great example. They had to actually type in the the guy with the funny name, right? And they had to re- remember that and want to go get information about that. And and that meant that the products had to you had to get much more of a grip on people, much more because you had to be remembered, you had to be desired, you had to be wanted, as opposed to just being, you know, do you want chicken or pork? Yeah, right. You know what's you know what I find fascinating about this though and we started off talking about the difference in this analysis between business and politics and that you've come to this conclusion uh in this article around the political system but the political system to a certain extent uh, people are still captive because when it comes down to the ultimate choice between a candidate this is one of the few places where uh, well, at least compared to to the business world, where you can go off into your infinite podcast land and pick the nichest podcast that you want. In the political process, there is an element of which uh, you still need to get a majority of the vote. And what's crazy to me is that if this force that you're describing works even in an environment where uh, you, where there still needs to be this kind of centralized cluster that is much more akin to the old world, and really its opportunity to have an impact in the political process is early on in allowing a politician to break through. If it's having that much of an impact in a process that's still partially uh, mired in the old world, so to speak, imagine how much impact it's going to have in the business world where all those constraints have completely gone away it's a great point and so so facebook you know just to kind of fill out this picture facebook was a similar thing where where it's it's information but in this case facebook actually pushes things to you right it gives you what you want to see but that pushing is based on you know the sort of engagement and the sort of like excitement and passions that that are inflamed and your point is a really good one because if you look at i, I kind of mentioned you know the, the sanders campaign here again i'm not going to get into political analysis who, who might have fared better against trump whatever that i'll leave that to to other folks but in the case of the democratic primary there was only two options so you're right it was still a sort of limited choice but that's why the republican primary is actually very interesting because there were 17 options that actually was much more akin to the business world that you're talking about, where mm. there's all kinds of products and they're mm-hmm. all competing. And in that world, this sort of ability to drive sort of agitation, to drive this sort of fervor and to basically get that algorithm to start spitting you out. And then it gets a virtuous cycle, right? Because more and more people are engaged, which again, the media, which is also fully commoditized and just, you know, is driven by the need for page views and whatnot, starts 
you then you start getting the you know the the what's called earned media and it gets in this virtuous cycle where you get bigger and bigger and bigger and that's what happened on on the Republican side it, it, and you know I wonder if the Democrats would have had 17 primary candidates maybe there would have been Sanders would have been the nominee because you would have it would have been much more of this sort of free for all as opposed to a very you know sort of limited choice Right. And as, yes, no, and that's an, that's an interesting hypothesis. You're right. Like at the start of the Republicans, you're, you're entirely right. It is much more of like a, a free market where the ability to generate those, the ability to cut through and make people feel something. It doesn't matter whether, I mean, it does to a certain extent, but it matters less than you might think whether people uh, feel positively or negatively towards you, it's getting them to feel something because that's, again, like you said, with the earned media, that's then what people want to engage with. People who dislike Donald Trump were probably reading just as much, if not more, about him and what was quote unquote the train wreck of the campaign from their perspective, they would keep driving those page views because they couldn't take their eyes off. And then the media is like, well, okay, if this is what's going to do well, we're going to keep covering it. And like you say, the virtuous cycle just keeps on continuing. But the interesting thing to note is it doesn't, it's not just uh, traditionally or, or intuitively, you might think it's whether it's a positive or negative emotion. Actually, I think that matters less than it, than the depth of the emotion. That's what that's what's absolutely critical in this case. Right, and and again, you you can draw this to its sort of logical conclusion as a, as as you know as it goes to political analysis. But I think what's what's really interesting and critical to understand with this, and this was sort of the conclusion of my of my piece, which I think applies. Absolutely, 100% applies to how you think about products and companies on the internet age. Like this was about politics, but it was about politics in that there is a much broader lesson to drive here, and that is you cannot you cannot get away with like you know Tide is not going to succeed by adding on Facebook ads, right? I mean, you make it some sort of incremental lift, but it's not really you know just to digital is not like just another advertising channel, right? Oh yeah, we had some print ads and we had some mm. TV ads and we had some radio yeah. ads, and we had some Facebook ads. I mean, yes, you will get some sort of benefit. It's not going to be nearly as good as the benefit you're getting from TV. And the reason is because the very fundamental nature of the product is not it's not suited to the environment, right? The the products that succeed on the internet, the products that that break through are the ones not the ones who are really good at buying Facebook ads, although Facebook ads can be a critical part of the strategy. The ones that succeed are the ones that get that sort of, you know, organic lift where because people become fans and they like them and they're passionate about them and they push them to their friends. And then you get the Facebook effect that kicks in. And it, and it ramps up. And you know, just to give an example, this is sort of like what what BuzzFeed was always trying to sell, right? I and mean, again, I, as we've talked about, I think they're moving much more to a just a pure content production model. But particularly when they're doing the branded content, their promise was not that we will produce compelling content, but we will do a, a full strategy. They would buy Facebook ads and they would see things. And the point is, we can generate organic lift on your ad buy as opposed to just putting an ad in the stream by getting people to retreat it and share it and all those sorts of things. And, and the, the, you know, this is why I've always found the company compelling because it's so very much living in the world as it is, not the world 
sort of as it was before. And that and that process has to go very all, all the way down to the very core of your product. Products need to be the way in the old days when the constraint was distribution, that's you know, it matters what is first. Your first constraint matters because if your first constraint was overcoming the distribution challenge, then it followed that your product design would be this sort of serve the 80%, don't make people mad, et cetera. Again, for politics, for politicians, for products, for everything. In this other world, though, if the imperative, if the way you gain, you get, you drive value, again, by getting a much greater return on your investment than you would otherwise is by inflaming passions, whether those be passionate fans or passionate enemies, to your point, the way you develop your product from the from first principles has to be totally different. It has to be divisive. It has to have a point of view because that's that's the only way that's going to break through. A, a dull knife doesn't go anywhere. The, the obvious the obvious conclusion here is that <laughs> it incumbents, particularly traditional incumbents, are going to be in serious trouble. But it's interesting to me on the political side how what you've just described explains how um, the norms that have been in place for so long that that have just been uh, like in the last election in in so many respects, they were just shattered and why the effect of that wasn't to, um, it, it, it wasn't to sink the candidate, which it, at any point up until this previous election, I, I can't help but feel like if someone had done, uh, had broken that many norms that they would have just been completely shut out. But because of the change in environment, because of the effect that the internet has had, that the, the, the way that the quote unquote product gets developed and breaking those norms and getting people fired up now works for people rather than against them. And and like we said at the start, like, and you push back on me, like it comes with good and it comes with bad. Yes, it's breaking norms. And there are some of those norms that have been developed that are there for a reason. And I think people are missing some of them. But on the other hand, one of the things that I definitely, I at least in principle appreciate and hold fire given my this statement in the current context. But it's like, I do appreciate the idea that politicians are now going to be more able to speak their mind and say exactly what they think, because that's something where norms had encouraged very diplomatic diplomatic wording, diplomatic behavior around certain things. And they people would talk around what they really meant for fear of offending people. Like the positive to this, this new environment is now actually you're going to be able to hear exactly what people think. And in fact, if, if someone doesn't come out and say exactly what they think, they're going to be punished for it as a result of this new environment that they're operating in. It's it's a fantastic point. I mean, your point about norms is so well made because again, what did we we describe in that old world where there was that constraint? The, the goal for the product that got through that bottleneck was to not piss people off, right? It was yeah. to be broadly acceptable to the maximum number of people, and that's the exact opposite of the current environment, right? You you want to you want to get people's attention. You want to inflame emotions, and again, it's really I get it's really hard to separate sort of the the real world manifestation of, from mm. this sort of larger picture analytical breakdown of what's happening. But again, it's critical to do exactly that, right? If, if, 
if you're just running around reacting to the, to what's happening without having a broader sort of appreciation of how the landscape has really fundamentally changed. And again, this isn't just about politics. It, this absolutely goes for everyone in business and and incumbents, you know? I mean, you have these huge markets and these huge businesses that that are were built on an advantage that doesn't exist and the reality is your products are coasting. They're coasting on their past advantages and people are going to wake up and they're going to realize it doesn't make sense anymore, right? It doesn't make sense to get in your car and drive to Walmart and buy whatever laundry detergent catches your eye based on some sort of brand affinity that was developed by seeing 50 gazillion commercials. Like that doesn't make sense. It makes sense to say device whose name I shall not say so I don't piss off my podcast listeners, order more laundry detergent, you know? I mean, and (laughs) it's so easy to get stuck in the day-to-day and to, especially when, especially in this environment because emotions are inflamed, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the very nature of the change is almost making it harder for people to see the change because it's hard to be analytical when, when, when you're emotional. Right. And I mean, I think that this cuts both ways. All these people that are that are upset about this, and they're probably people who are also associate pretty heavily with some of these norms that have been that have been traditionally broken, and they're focusing on the norms. But there is, if if you like, we we talked about in the previous episode how business is one of these things where it boils down to the dollars on the scoreboard. And, you know, elections, it's even more so. You you win or you lose. And all those folks who are particularly upset right now, like you can you can stay upset or you can you can take your take your wounds, take your licking, figure out like try and learn something from this and then come back the next time round with something that appeals to more people that that gets you over the line in in the system that you work in and i think what you've just described and what we're talking about here and this notion of breaking like these norms are being broken and to a certain extent they are not going to come back because now the nature of the environment that we are operating in people want to hear Politicians speak their minds and that will be rewarded. And when you come back for the next round, that is what you're going to need to deliver. You're going to need to cut through and not try to produce a candidate that would have won in the previous generation. You need to bring something new to the table. And it's not just in terms of policies, it's in how it's being delivered and how it's being communicated. And having, like you said, having this digital first uh, strategy and the tactics of Facebook and everything. Yeah, that's important. But understanding that the fundamental architecture of what you need to bring to the table to win has completely changed. Like, uh, yeah, you're upset, but if you really want to get even, like do the analysis, understand what's going on and come back at the next round with a with a better shot than what you had last time. And just to be clear, when I talk about being analytical and and, and I, I'm talking about for me. That's what I'm doing, right? I certainly don't begrudge anyone on either side of the aisle or or whatever. Again, like I think there's kind of multi-dimensional aisles now. I don't begrudge anyone feeling strongly about what's happening in politics or whatever and, and acting on that by no means. I'm just trying to articulate sort of what sort of my approach is and why I do think it's applicable and valuable 
to to anyone. And again, it's not just politics. I really think this is just as applicable to business and to products as as anything else. When when the fundamental terrain that you are competing on changes, you have to go back to first principles. And when you go back to first principles, you realize that the the constraint that guided not just sort of your strategy, but also the very nature of what you have to sell. Again, whether that be in politics, whether it be products, once that has changed, what you sell has to change. And and I think you made that point in the context of politics very well. But I, I think it's a it's a broader one, and, and you know something that's worth you know it's it's again it's not yep. going to go away. No, but I. I... You're underselling it. I think it's even more powerful in business than it is in politics. Like if you if you look at the political system, and again, we talked a little bit about the structure and how it still boils down to eventually two candidates effectively, and they there's going to be a clustering, which is much more like the old world. And and let's also not forget that the the candidate that lost actually won the popular vote by a few million more votes. And so there are still these tensions pulling in different ways. Like the political system maps much more to the old world than it, than than uh, the business world does that what you're describing. And yet you made these observations in the business world, in the political world rather, but they apply much more strongly in, in the business world because there isn't, like it doesn't just converge on a couple of candidates. It converges on the infinite shelf space that Amazon now provides. And you can try and have your generic don't offend anyone product, but that's not what's going to stick because now, like you said, the fundamental nature is completely changed and people are going to like go for the thing that fits them well, as opposed to the thing that offends them least on the shelf when they drive to Walmart. Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's a great point. Yeah, and and that was sort of the you're right. That's sort of the hesitation. Like I mentioned, like the Facebook likes thing, right? Which you know, the reason to to point it out was not to say that Sanders would have won per se, because to your point, the structures were very much you know still sort sort of pre internet. But the fact that almost that he was even a viable candidate, right, makes this you know very very compelling. I think it's very well it's very well well put. If it can have such an effect in a world that is still so constrained as the sort of American political process is, yeah, the the fr- the more open the market, the fewer constraints there are, the more true this is. And the more like I, at the end of the day, like it, it sounds cl- so cliché, but making the best stuff is going to win. That that's there's really no other takeaway. Uh, I mean, I, I remember last last year I was on uh, Ezra Klein's podcast, and we was talking about how I could, you know, build a business on the internet, like a blog, a successful blog on the internet that actually made money. Mm. And and I'm getting into like all these sort of technical things and da 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 and the business model, blah, blah blah. He's like, no, he's like, I don't think that just having that is enough. Like, how did you actually succeed? And I'm like, well, I wrote stuff that some number of people found really good and worth paying for he's like yeah you know like it's really good (laughs) well i mean that yeah that 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 sounds terrible when i say it like that but but it's not true you have you have a bunch of raving passionate fans and then they go tell their friends and they're willing to put a hundred dollars a year towards getting your stuff delivered into their inbox every day and like in a world of in a world of infinite audience or, or or seven billion people audience where you can 
you can go direct to customers. That is what wins as opposed to working your way up through the newsroom in the New York Times. Like that's the old world versus the new world right there. Yeah. And the reality is that the best didn't win before, right? In the old world, the best didn't win, at least from a product perspective. The best in the old world was the companies that could leverage their size and and whatnot to gain distribution advantages in basically constraining customers' choice, right? And so they could choose A or they could choose B. And A's goal was not to be the best possible product it could be. A's goal was to be slightly better than B and be, you know, have a cost advantage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and if you when you once you back up and think through the implications, this is the point. Everything about your the product development process has to fundamentally shift because the train is is different. But now I think we're repeating ourselves. So um uh <laughs> and I, I've uh I'm still swamped for time. Okay. Then we should probably <laughs> kill it. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, hopefully this podcast was uh, very good and worth seeking out and worth telling your friends about because that is the modern business model and we want to hold to it. That's true. And hopefully it wasn't just like a little bit better than the other podcast that you listened to. <laughs> if that was the case, then we're really in trouble. And I don't think any radio station is going to hire us anyway. So we're kind no, of... Oh, I know. I, <laughs> yeah. The radio stations still exist. Apparently, I, I, I hear rumors. I, I see podcasts from radio stations. I think that's my main exposure. I see them from NPR because NPR is like the New York Times in that sense, like just producing all this epic quality content. And it's a good example of like an old world, like producing great stuff and making it over to the new world. But well, other than that, you know, I will tell you, the New York Times did a strategy document a couple weeks ago, uh, like New York Times 2020 or something like that. And it's really good. It's worth reading. It's not too long. I'll put it in the show notes. It's very, you know, it's, it, as you would expect, it's well-written and, and understandable. And they've really internalized this point. And it makes me very encouraged for them as, again, from a, from a business perspective, that they need to be making editorial choices from who they hire in their newsroom to the way their processes run to the sort of article stories that they write that are focused on delivering unique value to subscribers and they need to get away from the page view count they need to get away from covering stuff because they've always covered stuff and it's such a critical shift and it's encouraging to see them make it because this is the shift that all incumbents have to make you are not succeeding because you're the only newspaper or one of only four or five newspapers or 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 whatever it might be you are succeeding because people want you they want your product and your all your product decisions and again this this applies to the times it applies to building a widget it applies to being a political candidate your decisions have to be driven towards building that that sort of magnetism and attraction and not just attraction for people, but the fervor to share, to tell others, say, hey, you go check this out, right? I haven't done a cent of marketing for Shatechery. It's everything, just people saying, hey, I get emails, I'm, oh, so-and-so said I should subscribe. Like People will subscribe sight unseen without having even read a weekly article because their friend said they had to subscribe. And like that, there is, I don't, there, that's the way, that's, that's the way forward, not just for me, but for, for everyone. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, it's it's one thing when you're building something like what you have from scratch. It's another thing when you have the storied history of something like the New York Times behind you and all the culture that brings and overcoming 
all the this is the way we've always done things and it's the way it is because it's made you successful like it's impressive that an organization like that is able to turn it around and like the obvious example is looking at the political parties and there there may have been candidates that that more or less matched what you described in terms of the mechanisms in order that are required in order for a candidate to win. But you see what the party's reaction was to that. It fought these candidates in a lot of different ways. Well, it's hard <laughs> to change that, right? I, I, yeah, I don't want to get too much into the details. Uh, I like to, to sort of skate above that. You know, and again, to your point too, politics is hard because it, it is a coalition business, right? You have mm. to, there still is a significant degree of you can't piss too many people off. But yes. no, your your point your your point is well made. And oh, the other thing I read about aggregation theory, right? This is how you break out of aggregation theory. You break out of aggregation theory by by connecting with customers directly. It's the only it's the only way. You have to build that direct relationship, and you build you don't get that direct relationship for free anymore. And this is what's been so hard for companies to adjust to. They just fell into being commoditized by Facebook, fell into being commoditized by Google because they they didn't have the they didn't have the wherewithal or the intrinsic ability to build stuff that people actually wanted. They only had the ability to build stuff that was good enough and could fill it, fill a distribution channel, right? If you want to succeed, if you want to break out of Facebook's power, if you want to break out of Google's power or whatever the aggregator industry might be, Airbnb or Uber, whatever it might be, you build that direct relationship with customers. And, it's, and you do that by delivering the best possible stuff. And yes, is, is is it hard to build a sustainable advantage doing that? Is it hard to build a moat? It's devilishly hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it's, it, I think no it's the choice. only, yeah, it's the only way. I mean, it's especially devilishly hard if you, if you need to get to build great stuff like that and you've, you've made your living in the past on just being good enough, like getting that extra 20%, the 80 to the 100 is, is particularly devilishly hard. And, and that's, yeah, and that's why the startups have all the advantages, right? Because yeah, they're, you, exactly. you can, like, yeah, you, I mean, just to use me as an example, right? I started from day one no, knowing I had to build that customer relationship, right? My metric when I launched, the pay model was how many people are visiting the site on days I don't post. Because that meant there's some degree of people that were seeking out more. They wanted more, right? And once that was large enough, th th then I could kind of go for it. But I was starting from scratch. If you were starting with a totally different model, I mean, in this, good luck. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I don't exactly. have anything better for you. I think that's right. Good luck. Right. I do have to run, but our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode, as they do every episode. And I will not talk to you next week. I will talk to you in two weeks. Two weeks sounds good to me. Enjoy your holiday. Well, thank you. I, I, will, I will try to. Okay. I'll talk to you then. Uh, yeah, bye-bye.